This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 75 of Retired Racehorse Radio on the Horse Radio Network, brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products and Cashel Company. Retired Racehorse Radio is your guide to the adoption, care, and training of the retired racehorse. Brought to you in cooperation with Retired Racehorse Project and New Vocations Racehorse Adoption Program. You guys, I am so excited because today's show is a real banger. We introduce our new co-host of Retired Racehorse Radio, Kristen Kovich-Bentley, and together we are teaming up with Natalie Mayrath from Streamhorse TV to interview racing royalty. We are speaking with Donna Brothers, who holds the record as the second highest leading female jockey in the U.S., and Diane Crump, who is, I just can't even believe it, the first woman to compete as a jockey in the Kentucky Derby, literally fangirling a little bit over here. We then get some expert tips from Leander Cooper from New Vocations on how to keep your horse healthy and happy during changing seasons, and we wrap it all up with our Adoptable Horse of the Week. Tiana Vestry is our Listener of the Week. If you'd like to be our Listener of the Week, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Now back to the show. And they're off on Retired Racehorse Radio, the podcast that is your guide to the adoption, care, and training of the retired racehorse. This is Joy Orr in Detroit, Michigan. And this is Kristen Kovach-Bentley in Jamestown, New York, and you're listening to Retired Racehorse Radio. Kristen, welcome to your first show, Retired Racehorse Radio, as a co-host. I'm so excited to have you today. <laughs> I am super excited to be here. Do you always put like, you know, an all-star lineup of guests on someone's first episode? Oh, you know, I wish I could say that's true. <laughs> we do our best here to make everything super exciting. I mean, it's International Women's Month. It's so crazy that we like we literally I feel like have knocked the the ball of the park on this one. But before we get into our great guests, let's introduce everyone to you. You've been a guest on the show because you've worked with the Retired Racehorse Project. You've given us updates, but now you're officially part of the Triple R family. Tell us a little bit about like who you are and what your horses are up to. What do you got going on that's, that we can all start following? Yeah, I'm a little surprised you all gave me a microphone, to be honest. I'm not <laughs> sure that that was a, a great decision, but we're going to find out. So <laughs> I'm very excited to be here. I've been a huge fan of everything on the Horse Radio Network for many, many years, all the way back when I worked at Horse Nation and was a guest on Horses in the Morning. So it's very cool to be here. So yeah. For this year, let's see. I've got, oh gosh, I'm up to three retired racehorses now. I don't know quite how that happened. Well, like um, potato chips. Yeah, well, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Well, and then I've branched out now and I've got both kinds. <laughs> so we've got two thoroughbreds and I have a standard bread now. So my little racehorse ranch, as I call it, is expanding. Hopefully we'll sort of press pause there on three, but we'll go with the three that we have for now. Yeah, we use them as ranch horses up on our family farm in Jamestown, New York. So we've got about 40 pairs of cattle, so breeding pairs, so cows and calves. So actually, pretty much this weekend, we'll be saddling up and going out and rounding up the cows. And my husband rides one of my thoroughbreds, and I'll be getting the standard bread legged up. So always I a good time. I'm just obsessed. By the way, everyone needs to follow Kristen on social media because her photos are just the best. You look like you're always having a great time riding your horses, riding jobber. And it's just amazing. Like I'm a dressage person. I don't 
everyone knows the stereotype. I don't want to get dirty. I like my arena. I like things in control. And like, you are the exact opposite of me. I envy (laughs) you for that. (laughs) Yeah. There are moments for sure when I would really like to have an arena. Like if you would like to come and leg up jobber this spring, you're more than welcome because um, yeah, away from those four safe arena walls, it's not that much fun. Uh, (laughs) Once he gets through his dragon phase, then he's fine. He's probably my most reliable horse. He actually, I'm going to brag on him for a minute because we just got the TIP performance awards results. Um, and he was eighth overall Western horse and the champion other Western horse, which is where I sent all of his cow horse results. And then he was the reserve champion ranch riding horse. So he had a great year in 2021. I don't know that we'll be able to match that in 2022. So I'm not like a set the bar higher kind of person. I'm a, that was fun. Let's just have another fun year person. Spoken <laughs> so, like a true amateur. <laughs> yeah. Totally, I'm like, well, that was a great same. fluke. So I'm going to enjoy my uh, two shiny belt buckles and we'll call that a call that a career for old jobber, but no, we're going to, we're going to have some fun this year. I'm trying to convince my husband to come to the ranch shows. He's, he comes to all the shows. That's why I have all those lovely photos because he takes them all. Uh, But I'm trying to convince him. He's putting in some serious hours this winter on shorty, my other thoroughbred. And I think it would be great for him to just sort of test his skills and see how far he's come and go to the horse show. But we'll see. He likes to be in a supporting role rather than in the show pen. So we'll see how it goes. I love it. What a great horse husband. He's really setting an example for others. I think that's amazing. And I love that we are going to have now like an English and Western perspective on the show. We have thoroughbreds and standard breads represented. I I just think it's going to be a great combination. I really hope our listeners will too. But as you're saying, we have an amazing lineup today. We have some of the most, and I know I want to put a dollar in the swear jar, some of the most badass women I've ever seen coming onto the show today to share their experiences in the horse world. But before we get into that, we're going to hear from our titled sponsor, Kentucky Performance Products, also founded by a badass woman. Thank you, Karen Eisberg, for being amazing. And we'll get into the show right after this. This Nutrition Minute is brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products, the company that simplifies your search for research-proven nutritional supplements at kppusa.com. The horse that matters to you matters to Kentucky Performance Products. Electrolytes. Who needs them? Your horse, that's who. Electrolytes perform critical functions within your horse's body. They help regulate nerve and muscle functions by carrying electrical impulses between cells. In addition, electrolytes assist the body in maintaining a healthy fluid balance by controlling your horse's desire to drink. When your horse loses significant amounts of electrolytes and fluids, problems such as dehydration, muscle cramping, fatigue, tying up, and colic may occur. Even in mild forms, these conditions can have a negative impact on your horse's ability to perform and recover after exercise. Top riders and veterinarians turn to Summer Games Electrolyte to keep their horse healthy in hot weather, and you can too. Summer Games replenishes the electrolytes and trace minerals lost when your horse sweats, and it stimulates the thirst response so your horse continues to drink and stay properly hydrated. So when the going gets hot, trust Summer Games Electrolyte from Kentucky Performance Products to protect your horse. This Nutritional Minute has been brought to you by Kentucky Performance Products. You can find all of their terrific products at kppusa.com. 
I could not think of a better way to celebrate International Women's Month than having this amazing group of women come on to talk about their roles in racing. But first, I'd like to introduce kind of the person who put all this together. We have Natalie Mayrath from Stream Horse TV. They're putting together an epic event called Trailblazing Horsewomen. It's a live stream, but she'll tell you more about it. But Stream Horse TV has a great mission to build an inclusive community where horse enthusiasts can join together to expand their horizons in equine sports and culture. And to me, they fit perfectly into our beliefs here at Horse Radio Network. So Natalie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here on so many levels. And as you mentioned, we are putting on our second women's celebration live stream called the Trailblazing Horse Women. And we did this last year on International Women's Day. And we had a bunch of stellar women across equine and some people in the racing community kept saying, you should really do a racing one. And we had loved the exhibit at the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame in Saratoga. They did a phenomenal job. And that exhibit has ended. But in all of those discussions, we decided to put forth a Trailblazing Horsewomen Racing Edition. And so here we are. It's going to air on March 15th. And we have a wonderful group of women, including Donna Brothers, Diane Crump, who are both here with us now for the show. And we will have Janet Elliott and Julie Crone, who are our female Hall of Famers, and 90-year-old Joe Motion, Motion Family Matriarch, and Steeplechase Veteran. So lots uh, of discussion, revelry, wisdom and hopefully some really good stories from these ladies when we get together. Absolutely. I am so excited that you are putting this together with Stream Horse TV. I couldn't think of a better group of people. I mean, I feel like we see the racing world being very male dominated. So it's going to be great to get this perspective and really highlight some badass women who have been involved with it. And we have two of them with us today. I'm so excited to have Donna and Diane who secretly I'm fangirling. I have to admit, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm like, Oh my gosh, starstruck to have them both on. But um, Natalie, I'll have you kick off with some of our first questions. I'd love for you to kind of be a co-host with us tonight. Sure. Well, Diane and Donna, you both are extraordinary and and I'm a fangirl as well of both of you. So what I'd love to ask y'all is how you each got into racing. And I'm not sure I've ever heard that answer from either of y'all before. So Diane, could you tell us since you went first? For me, I was just horse crazy from a little tiny kid, even though there were no horses around and I was not involved with anybody that even had any idea what a horse was. So mine was, I don't know, it was innate is all I can say. I mean, something that God put this love in my heart. And I've loved horses since the time I was like four years old. And I knew what, even knew what they were. So I've just, I was emotionally involved with anything to do with horses from the time I was a little tiny kid. I just wanted to ride, ride, have a horse. And so I saved money when I, when my parents promised me I could have a horse when we moved to Florida because we lived in Connecticut and there was zero room for anything related to a horse. So at any rate, we moved to Florida and I had saved money and bought a riding horse. And when my parents settled in Florida, they, unbeknowing to anybody, moved to the west side of Tampa. And then right after that to Oldsmar, which 
as you all know, is the home. It was Sunshine Park back in that day, which then Florida Downs and now Tampa Bay Downs. So that's basically where I grew up. And I started riding just as a kid, bought a little trail horse, rode all around, and discovered the racetrack out riding. And it was instant fascination. And so my parents were hardworking, didn't really have the money for me to even keep horses. So I had I started a little riding club, and I got a job at a horse farm, not even knowing that it was a racehorse farm. And one thing led to another, and the more I got involved, the more I, when the horses came to the track, it was instant fascination for me every day. I mean, for me to ride and then go to the farm and work with horses and little by little learn how to gallop. I mean, just learn how to do anything that has anything to do with the racehorse. It fascinated me, and I loved it. And nobody could understand that, not in my family, because there was not one person that ever knew anything about a horse. So I don't know. Mine was some somehow that little seed was planted in there, and it kept growing as I as I kept following my little dream. It kept growing and. Little by little, I just it just took off. And once races came into town, and uh, little by little, I learned how to gallop. And from there, I wanted to be a jockey. I could see everybody else. I learned how to break horses out of the gate, and I knew that was what I wanted. So it was one step at a time, but that's how mine got started. And there was a little bit there of there was some sneaking in, right, to the farm, and there was some well, convincing we your not, parents. There was no sneaking into the farm, but to the track. Kids weren't allowed. You couldn't go into the track until you were 16. In those days, one of the trainers that that worked for the farm that that I was working for would sneak. I'd, I'd skip school and hide behind the 7-Eleven, and he'd pick me up and throw horse blankets over me and smuggle me in the morning. Some mornings, not every. I did make it through school by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> but yes, any chance I had after school, once the races were in town, so anything to do with horses that's what I did I loved it and I had my own riding horse I'd ride all night and then go to the farm in the morning and work all day no it's what I loved so at the time were there a lot of other women as exercise riders or were you there were none of the few the first year I came around as a kid I guess I was maybe 12 or 13 there was not one single woman on the backside I think the next year when the races came back to town there was one lady that ponied horses other than that, it was many years before I ever saw a woman on the backside. But, I mean, I could care less. I didn't pay any attention to that. I didn't notice, and I, I didn't care. I just loved what I was doing. And no one else seemed to care either. <laughs> and, Donna, you had your mother in the same peer group as Diane, and you had it in the family. But how did you actually get your start? Well, first of all, I have to say that I love hearing Diane's story. I mean, it fills my heart with joy just to hear somebody have so much passion and know what they want to do from such a young age and then just pursue that passion. Because so many people, I think, just sort of flop around through life, like not really having a direction. And so it fills my heart with joy to hear Diane go like, nope, that's what I wanted. But I was the other end of that spectrum because my mother was more like Diane. She grew up in a non-horse family, just something in her. She was attracted to it. She made it happen. I grew up 
we always had horses. We always rode. I remember having to carry water buckets from the house in Pennsylvania through three-foot snowdrifts all winter long to our horses because the water was frozen in the barn before school. So then you'd have to go back in and change clothes before you got on the school bus. And so I didn't have a romantic notion about horses or horse racing at all because it's the way I grew up. And so if my mother were here and she would tell the story, she would say, I had three kids. One of them had no interest in having anything to do with horses or horse racing when she got older, and that was Donna. (laughs) And then I became a jockey, right? So how the hell did that happen? And for me, it was just a process of elimination. I graduated from high school a year early, which was sort of accidental. I just ended up with a a lot of credits, and my mother was marrying her fifth husband. And so (laughs) there was... At some point, I went to the counselor and said, you got to get me out of here. I'm not signing on for another year. So I managed to get out of school a year early. And then, um, yeah, I went to the racetrack and I started galloping horses because that's what I knew to do. And I, I didn't realize, honestly, until I got to the track and started galloping horses with people who weren't related to me because my brother, my mother, and my, my sister were all really good riders. And so it wasn't until I rode with other people who didn't grow up with it that I realized I actually have a talent for this. I'm pretty good at it and I'm small and I'm strong. And so I just decided finally when I was 21 to ride my first race to eliminate that as a career option. And if I didn't like it, I was going to go back to Kentucky and maybe go to college. At that time I was in Birmingham, Alabama. It was their inaugural meet in 1987. And um, I rode my first race and this won't come as a surprise to Diane, but what would surprise me, you know, at that point in my life, again, I was 21, I'd probably watched 10,000 races. My mother had rode, my brother and my sister had both been jockeys. Everybody in my family by then had retired for one reason or another. And um, what shocked me was just how exciting it was. So I rode my first race and I came back and I thought, oh my God, not only is that the most exciting thing I've ever done, it's the most challenging thing I've ever done. So I just didn't think it would be that challenging since my brother, my mother, and my sister had all done it. And yeah, I was blown away. And and I had, suddenly I had this passion and that passion that Diane talks about so effusively from age four when she was on a horse, suddenly I had this passion at 21 that I had never had for something that was quite familiar to me. So it was very convenient. That's absolutely amazing. I mean, like my jaw is literally on the floor of the fact not to use the term trailblazing, but you, both of you were trailblazing for women in the sport. And Donna, my question is for you, your mom was racing around the same time that Diane was racing for you as a young girl. How did that really set the stage for your brain? Because it is such, uh, we still see it a little bit as a male dominated sport, especially back then. How did you see your mom racing and Diane racing? How did that influence you to say, I can do this? This can really be something I want to do, I can do, and I don't care what a man tells me. Diane, first of all, I bought your book because I I didn't have the pleasure of getting to ride with you very much or getting to know you better. And so all the pioneers like Diane and my mother who came up early deserve way more credit than anybody than like me because I came along, you know, well after 20 years after women had been riding almost 20 years. And so honestly, it just never occurred to me that it wasn't something for everyone. Uh, When I started riding in 1987 and I would get the question about, 
any sort of gender discrimination, my answer was like, mm. it's 1987 people. That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> like I just really didn't, I didn't see it. And the reason I didn't see it is because if my mother ever experienced anything like gender discrimination, she never gave it a name. And so she would, I think in her mind, maybe she recognized it in her mind. She certainly never verbalized it. But what I saw, the example that I saw was somebody who, if there was somebody that she wanted to ride for and they weren't riding her, in her mind, she felt like it was either because she wasn't good enough yet and she would get there or because they didn't realize how good she was and she would prove that to them. And so I just saw this like determination, but I didn't see it as like, this unusually determined woman, it was my life. It was all I knew. I didn't think that every woman on the planet wasn't equally determined. And so for me, it was just, it was mundane, quite frankly. That was my life. It was my world. And so what I was shocked about was when I would see women in the world who didn't speak their truth, who didn't you know, speak, like just step right into their, who they believed they were. And again, the credit goes back to people like Diane and my mother, who all they witnessed were women who were afraid to step forward. And all they did was step forward into their truth. They just didn't care. I love no, that. I've answer. never cared. I never cared. Yeah. No. I just knew yeah. that it was what I wanted to do. And I didn't give a damn what anybody said, thought, or whatever. <laughs> I never, I just never. It never went in. I mean, it went in one ear, not the other. I never just didn't listen to it. Forget it. That kind of um, makes me wonder just with the uh, generational difference. So I know in the class of 1969, as Diane's biographer, Mark Schrager, loves to call this powerhouse group of women who were on the front line, Patty, Donna's mother included, and Diane included in that group, and Kathy Kussner, who we always have to give a shout out to because she was the one who push the apprentice license through court case after court case. And finally invoking the civil rights act, she, she well, became she an official for women to be licensed through, but they didn't grant her an apprenticeship because she was too old by the rules of racing at that time. So unfortunately yeah. when she started riding, she had to start riding as a journeyman who had never ridden a race. Yes. Yes. So I'd be curious Donna, after kind of being shielded from any discriminatory definitions by your mother, did you feel, and I know Diane, you've said before, do you think I was making a living by getting mounts? Not necessarily. Donna, did you I, feel I mean, like... I, always, I was, a, you know, I ran the barn. I galloped 20 horses seven days a week for 20 years. <laughs> I mean, that's how mm. I made a living. Not Certainly not riding races. I mean, yes, of course I made money riding races, but not like a normal jockey would. I mean, if I didn't do other things, then I couldn't make a living doing it, obviously. But I always, and, you know, was a Shedro foreman. I was assistant trainers. You know, I did all kinds of stuff along with when I rode races. But I, that's what it took for me to survive. Donna, did you feel, how, how was it in your generation? First of all, my mother also, at the time that she rode, she actually was able to be successful, and, and part of that was because she rode at some cheaper racetracks than I think what Diane rode at. So mom started riding, and, like, I mean, like, she rode her first race in, like, Colorado, like Pikes Peak, Colorado, and then she went to Waterford Park back when it was Waterford, which it's Mountaineer now, and she had her apprenticeship there. And so she started out at some really small or obscure racetracks like division one, definitely. I mean, not division one, but like the first level, lowest level that you could start out. 
And but it um, does help you get mouse to do that. So she was smart. Correct. She was smart to do yeah, that. Yeah. So she was able to like work her way up. And so within the first couple of years of her riding, she won a lot of races. And I want to say after she'd been riding for a couple of years, she was the leading female rider in the nation. And then when she was at Waterford Park, and she went there with the apprenticeship. She became one of the leading riders there. And, and so she was making a living doing it. Not a great living because again, like I remember when she won her first stakes race, I was a teenager and the pot was $10,000 and it was at Beulah Park and it was the biggest race she had ever won. So we're not talking about a lot of money here, but she did make enough money to support her three kids. But having said that, in the off season, if, if we raced anywhere where they didn't race year round, she sold encyclopedias door to door. I remember her doing taxes for H and R Block in the off season. Like she would do whatever it took to continue to be able to put food on the table and your mother was very around. She was one cool lady. I will say that she was Thank a go getter. Absolutely, you. I love your mother. I'm sure she would say the same thing about you too. But thank you. And so when I came around, it was a lot easier. I mean, honestly, when I started riding again in 1987, I thought, we'll see, like, at least I'll ride long enough and make money with my apprenticeship and I'll save all my money and then I'll go to college. And so I did that. I saved my money, but I was fortunate in that I continued to do well. And I did well for the whole time I rode. And so I loved riding for 11 years. I rode for 11 and a half years though. And so it was the last six months that I had become disenchanted with it. And I just, it just started to feel more like work than fun. And at the same time I had been dating Frank brothers for a few years, who was a horse trainer. And, and we had sort of talked about getting married, but we hadn't because there's this rule in horse racing where if a, a jockey and a trainer are married, anytime the trainer has a horse in the race, the jockey either has to ride that trainer's horse or sit the race out. And so we just didn't want to be saddled with that. And so we, we hadn't gotten married yet, but ultimately we both decided it was, I was ready to move on. And so we would get married and live happily ever after, but I was able to make a nice living out of it. And again, fortunate in that I came up in a different era too, because I think Anybody who, any of the female riders who made a living out of it back in my mother and Diane Crump's era, they certainly weren't doing it at any of the even middle level racetracks and, and definitely not the top level racetracks. No, it was pretty, it was tough. I mean, it's tough to get maps. I mean, luckily, you know, I had one barn that loved, that loved me. They loved the way I rode and I rode all their horses. I mean, you know, I did marry Don, but the people that owned the horses, Warner Jones and Mr. Brown, the man that owned Fathom, the horse I rode in the Derby. I mean, they just loved the way I rode and they thought that I was as good as anybody. And they, so they promoted me and, you know, of course they were already quite old and then they died after the first four or five years after I started riding. So that <laughs> hurt me in, in a way, but at least they gave me a good start. I certainly got to ride at some nice tracks and I, you know, did win races there. I mean, I loved riding at Keeneland, Churchill, and went to Monmouth Park in the summer. And I did get to go to some nice tracks, and I did have some people that believed in me, but it just wasn't that many of them. That was the problem. So I had to do a lot of other things. You know, I had to gallop a lot so, of other horses. I had to go to the training center in the afternoon. And, you know, I had so to... So let me say, one of, was, one of the things that Diane was dealing with and my mother dealt with is that back in the time when they were coming up, there's always horses that people don't want to ride. There's always horses that are like, they're either too crazy or too slow or whatever, that you're not going to be able to get a top level rider to ride it. 
And so if you can get somebody like Diane or back when my mother started who had the passion and who wanted to get inside that horse's head and like figure out like, is it really slow or is it just not trying? And if it's not trying, why isn't it trying? And if it's crazy, is it really crazy or is it just misunderstood? And so people like Diane, the reason why owners would fall in love with her and people like my mother is because they would take the time because they had fewer opportunities. And so they would take the time to get into that horse's head. Am I right, Diane? I think that is so well said. I had one horse that I won five in a row. I know it was cheap, but the horse literally would just barely canter out of the gate and it would stay last forever. And finally at the corner pole, it'd start running. And I, and I just let it run its race and I won five in a row on it. They were cheap claimers and we, you know, it was a couple of different racetracks, but when a horse finally did get claimed, it never won another race ever in its life. So, I mean, there were things like that. And I think it is because we tried to figure it out. You know, I mean, it was like, you didn't look at the form and said, Oh my God, I'm, why am I even on that? But you didn't do that. You thought of a way to make it work. And so many times it did work. I think mm-hmm. because of that, because you, you had that desire for it to work. In a, a similar vein, sort of in the work that I've been doing for the Retired Racehorse Project and aftercare, it's pretty apparent that the aftercare field is, I would say, female-dominated. Like, just looking at our stats, like 94% of our readership of Off-Track Thoroughbred Magazine is women. But at the same time, you know, you can look at the racing world and still think, like, oh, that's pretty male-dominated. From your perspectives, is racing male-dominated and aftercare is female-dominated, or do you think that doesn't matter, or why do you think that might be? I think it goes back to what I just said. I think a lot of the girls are more willing to, women, I should say, are more willing to, let's see what he wants to be. He doesn't want to be a racehorse. What does he want to be? Like, does he want to be a jumper? Does he want to do Western pleasure? Does he want to be a pasture ornament? Does he want to do dressage? Where I think, and I'm speaking in general terms here, and I really hate it when people do that about women. So I don't mean to make it sound like I'm speaking that way about men, but there's not as many men, let me just say, that there aren't as many men who want to try to figure out the puzzle. They would rather just go, no, I do dressage. I do show jumping. I do eventing. When you have a horse like that, bring him to me. But that's just my thought on it. Diane? I mean, I think you're pretty accurate. Because I think innately, a woman has, you know, you want to nurture. I mean, I guess for lack of a better word, I don't Mm. even know if that's a word. It's sort of in you to want to take care of things and want to help something. At least I, I believe that. So you're helping them, whether it was racing and trying to figure out how a horse wanted to run or after they were through racing to figure out then what would give them a good life. And so Mm. in my business, I, you know, basically sport horses. So for me, 95% of my business are, are all women because they, I mean, they just want to ride, you know, maybe something that they always dreamed of and couldn't do until a later age in their life when they were financially able. And I think that goes over with taking care of a horse, whether they want to ride or not. But I think those are the kind of things that, I don't know, you just see more in women. Not, I'm like Donna. I don't like to generalize either because we all are what we are. You know what I mean? Inside of us, the way we are. I don't think you can, you can't say someone does this or that. It's in you to maybe have, want to be able to help things, help the situation, help the horse. And I think those are some of the things that, some characteristics that might go a little bit stronger 
with a one. I respect that. It is really hard to talk about this without making these generalities. Like, you know, we don't want to say like, oh, well, men don't like to do this and women like to do this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the reality of it at the same time, like trying to figure out why <laughs> the world is that it is. Especially with like our listener well, group for say- this show too. I mean, they're, they're yeah, coming but, for the but aftercare. I would be, but I, I mean, I would even venture to say that nobody would argue that racing could be generalized as male dominated. Mm-hmm. Do we know the reason yeah. or do we know the, what the answer is to make more change? And again, to go back to the lovely Mark Schrager, Mark outlined the women on paper since that class of 1969, Donna, you're in that group. And back to the riders, we don't have like a long paper trail since that group. And I don't know if Donna has anything to offer in terms of who people she's interviewed who kind of along the way in, in your broadcast career, if you've interviewed people who are very strong advocates for women in different roles in the industry. But I think it is pretty separate, like Kristen's saying. I mean, not that's right or wrong, but there's definitely a differential there. Just wanted to jump in and get a perspective as well, or to add on is women have different challenges than men. We can say we grow up and we are empathetic. Not that men aren't, there are men who definitely are, but we also tend to be the child bearers and child rearers. And do you think that family mentality or even the fear of like culture, like, could I be a bad mother if I invested a career as a jockey, but also wanted to be a parent? Do you think that plays into why we don't see more women as jockeys today? Well, I can tell you that when Tammy Fox continued to ride after she and Dale had two children together, that she took so much heat. And I I would hear people say like, I cannot believe that Tammy is still riding after she's had children. And I'm like, why don't you say that about Robbie Alvarado? Why don't you say that about Mm -hmm. Shane Sellers? I mean, they're the breadwinner. They're the breadwinners and they're riding and yet she's not the breadwinner necessarily. And you're going to, because she's a woman and yeah, for sure that happened. But I think the main reason why it happens to be honest is because one of the things I used to always say when I was a jockey is that I don't ever have any trouble convincing other jockeys that I am as good as they are. I really don't. I don't have any trouble convincing trainers that I can ride as well as the guys. That's not a problem. I go to the gym that the same guys go to that I ride with and I can lift what they lift. So they know I'm as strong as them. The people I had trouble convincing were the owners because the owners would have trouble understanding that women could be as strong. And I think that's where the problem lies with both trainers and jockeys with with females trying to excel. And especially at the higher levels in the sport is that, you still do have a little bit of a stigma with some of the owners who aren't involved in the day-to-day, who don't understand what it takes to be good with horses, to be a good trainer, you are to so be a good right. rider. 100%. Yes. So yes. you've experienced the same thing too, Diane? Yes. Well, I was going to say, like in a Go more ahead. recent time too, I mean, Ride Like a Girl came out last year where we got a chance to see Michelle Payne face those things in a very real span of time that a younger generation could see. And that's still happening today where there is that stigma. And a question for both of you, we see leadership in the horse world, whether it's on the jockey club or the owners at stake, the ones holding the bucks at the end of the day, they, they typically are older white men if there was more diversity at the table in that leadership decision, what do you think the world of racing would look like? Whether it was men or people of other races, just 
a more well, diverse you know panel. Look at the whole world and you can <laughs> and ask that same question. I don't care what it is. Look at the whole world. It's the same thing, isn't it? And it, that would be a nice question to ask every country, not just racing. Why is it older white men? Come on, get put, put women in there. Put black men and black women. Put anybody in there. I don't care. But you know what? When I came around the racetrack, I don't care who you were. You could be old. You could be young. You could be black. You could be white, purple, brown, came wherever. <laughs> you came, spoke English, didn't speak English, never went to school a day in your life, couldn't read one word. We were all equal because we all busted our ass seven days a week. We took care of horses. If they got hurt, we were there all night, no matter what it was. We were equal. So it's nice to, I got to see that. And I love that part about it, that we were equal. And that's what the world needs. But when is that going to happen? I, I don't know. But I'd like to see it happen, not just in racing, yeah. but in the whole world. <laughs> I will say that as a jockey, I didn't ever feel like I was discriminated against. And part of that is because, for being a female, part of that is because I started in 1987, not 1969. But also, I think part of it is just because when people would ask me, do you feel like you've been discriminated against or is it tougher for you because you're a female? I, my answer was always, I don't know. I've never been a male jockey. I have no idea what they go through. <laughs> like, I know it's hard for all of us, right? Like, I know, mm -hmm. like, the Latinos. Yeah, I mean, I never, English, felt, I never felt that way. Right. Yeah, so the Latinos whose English isn't perfect, like, they could easily say, well, he discriminates against me because I don't speak good English or... African-American jockeys or a white jockey who grew up in the city instead of growing up in, with family in the racetrack. So there are all sorts of things that you can hang your hat on for not being successful because it's hard to succeed in any business and especially as a jockey in the thoroughbred business. And so I, I think that if I'm going to give advice to anybody, it's going to be to focus on your successes and to focus on how to get more of them instead of trying to figure out why you didn't succeed based on anybody discriminating against you. Like, just keep looking within. Like, I, I just picked up the ball that my mom had sort of started with, or I guess I should say grab the baton. You had a good role model in your mother. I, I, I did. That much. I did. Yep. Yeah. And so for me, it was always like, well, I guess I'm not good enough yet. I guess they don't know how good I am yet. And, and it wasn't because, again, I never heard her say those words, but it was the way I felt because of the way that she modeled that. And so I think Absolutely. if everybody just keeps doing that, just keeps looking within and going, how can I be better? How can I show them that I'm better? Then you'll get where you want to go. That really does yeah, go absolutely. far, far away. Cause I remember when you said that earlier, Donna, you know, that your mother never made a deal about it. She just went and worked hard that role models can do so much work for us. And I'm just thinking, I didn't realize this until Diane was telling her story when we were little and our 4-H barn would all go to the track for a day. Then it was Philadelphia Park. Now it's Parks Racing. And we'd all line the rail and all of those girls, we were all like, let's grow up and be jockeys. And no one ever told us yeah. that was something we couldn't do because you ladies had already blazed that way for us. And I think growing up with that mentality where, you know, our coaches and trainers were like, sure, do it if you want to. I'll give you a spoiler. None of us did. But, <laughs> but you know, the option was, was given to us that like, hey, that's totally cool. So I think having those role models can really go a, a really far yeah. way towards inspiring that next generation. Absolutely. Well, there's also still that thing where most adults aren't built to be uh, the size of a jockey. <laughs> We're not exactly adult size. <laughs> yeah, I'm 5'11". Yeah, it's, it's not happening for me. But it, <laughs> yeah, no, not what you said, Kristen. 
It, it really does well, show the and, importance of being seen, of seeing someone like you out in the industry to kind of pave that way. Yeah. I'm just, I thank you both for everything you've done. And Donna, thank your mother as well, because I think it's really everything you have done has opened so many doors for the future we have. And I'm sure we're going to see more great women coming up and doing more changes in the industry that we need. It's thank you both for just the legacy that you've left behind. Thank you. I appreciate that. And yes, I agree with you. I think we'll see more and more of them. It's just a matter of time right now. We don't really have an agrarian agrarian society like the one that Diane grew up in. And I did also to a certain extent. So I think we see a lot more of the Latinos coming along because they grow up riding horses more than our, whether it's the American boys or the American girls. And so hopefully we'll see more and more of the uh, girls who grow up in riding in other disciplines have interest in becoming jockeys because they're probably more likely than, I mean, again, it's just one of those things like you were talking about with the retired racehorses. If you look at the, the kids who are age 10, 11, 12, 13, who are riding, I would say the bulk of them are females also. And so hopefully we'll see more of those young girls expressing an interest in having a career in thoroughbred racing. The leadership question came up last year in our Trailblazing Horsewomen program. And there were a couple of ladies who who really said out loud, we're not afraid to say that the leadership was going to be left behind by the girls who had the role models and the young people who were going to come and, and still change whether the leadership liked it or not. So that was an interesting takeaway. And the whole idea is horses, right? So horses are powerful in bringing us together to mm-hmm. to do things and, and yeah. follow our passion. Absolutely on that, Natalie. And I mean, everyone knows we're ho- crazy horse girls are a force that cannot be reckoned with. I mean, you can't stop a crazy horse girl at all. Let's face it. Horses have given so many people so many great things. It's one of the greatest animals. I mean, they just give you so, they give you a desire to be better, no matter what Mm -hmm. it is. And that part I love. I just, I love that part of them. And yeah, I, I think Rob Moquette said it well with Whitmore. He, he he tweeted one day with a picture of Whitmore grazing. I've never been on his back, and only a few people have, but he's taken thousands of people along on a great ride. Yes. Isn't that well yes. said? Yeah. I think that's but, a perfect yeah. place like, to like a perfect note to end on because that really is Mm -hmm. the summary of what horses offer and what horses bring to us. Oh my gosh, Donna, Diane, I can't thank you both enough. Natalie, thank you so much for putting this together. We'll go round Robin. So you can talk about where people can find you. I know you both have books. It's so important. Donna, let's start with you. Where can people find you and tell us a little bit about your, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, Donna B brothers on Twitter and just brothers.donna on Instagram. And uh, my book is Inside Track and Setter's Guide to Horse Racing. And I wrote it just because I felt like people needed a, just a basic guide to horse racing. And you can get it on Amazon. And 100% of the proceeds on retired racehorses is a good time to mention this. Go to the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance because I really did write the book because I felt like the industry needed it. And what better way to support the industry than by supporting aftercare? Oh, amazing. Thank you so much for that and being so generous as well. Diane, where can people find you in your book? I can't say that um that social as Donna. So I am on Facebook. <laughs> but my my book is on Amazon. It's just Diane Crump 
whatever it says. <laughs> Something about my life. I don't even know what the title is. Diane Crump. <laughs> it's Diane Crump, a racing pioneer's life in the saddle. And I highly recommend it. I'll just say that. And I do have a website, <laughs> which is my name, Diane Crump Equine Sales. But for me, I wanted the book to be something that told people, anybody, that if you have a desire in your heart, that God put it there and follow that. You follow your dream. You'll follow the the life that you were meant to live. I do believe that. And that's the reason I searched my soul to try to get that book written. And I found, Mark found me, I should say. Not I didn't find him, but he found <laughs> me. And I think together, I hope we accomplished at least some little fraction of that, that people can live their dream and know that you can be a nothing and a nobody that came from some town in the boondocks and (laughs) you are equal in God's eyes. And if you desire something, you can do it. Just put your heart to it. Mm, Well said. Love it. Yes, absolutely. And Natalie, last but not least, where just to give another plug to stream horse where people can listen in and learn more about this great event you're doing for trailblazing women. We're on streamhorse.tv. I will add that a lot of our content directive is aimed toward retired racehorses because it aligns organically with our mission to bring horse lovers together regardless of discipline, sport, breed, anything, just horse lovers. So we do a lot of storytelling around the retirees, which probably really fit this audience. And the Trailblazing Horsewomen Racing Edition live stream will be on our YouTube and Facebook on March 15th at 6 p.m. So feel free to tune in. But if you can't tune in, you can catch the replay on our website or YouTube or Facebook afterward. And we are a fun follow also on Instagram and TikTok now at Streamhorse TV, all one word. Awesome. And if you guys are watching, be sure to like take a snapshot and tag Streamhorse in it. Tag us on it as well. If you heard it from our show, we love to know that you're supporting both Natalie and all the amazing women who are participating in the program. Thank you all so much again. This has Love been it. a blast. I'm like the most motivated I've ever been. I'm like, I'm going to go achieve my dreams today. <laughs> like I feel really <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so Donna, yeah. Diane, um, I, so I don't want anyone to kill me, but would y'all, because this is retired racehorse radio, do y'all want Diane to talk about what retirement of racehorses was like back then versus what it is now? I, I, I just feel like that's such a that. nugget. I'd absolutely love to end on that. Here's the thing. When I was at the track and all these various farms, even before I ever started riding, but when the horses got through racing, really people didn't know what to do with them. And the owners, a lot of them were the breeders in a lot of cases. They just went home to the farm and retired. The people were not aware. The people on the racetrack were not really aware of what happened. When they quit racing for whatever reason, they got sore, got tired of running, whatever, they went home. And that's usually to whatever farm they came from, the breeder, whatever. And they went home and they just got turned out. Nobody really faced that, like what to do with them. And so I think they didn't really have that much life. And I'm so happy and so glad that people started waking up to the fact that it's a great animal. It's a wonderful horse. And they deserve more. They deserve not to race for two years or three or whatever. 
and then have no life after that. And so now all of a sudden there's such a great awareness that, I mean, it's fantastic because truly, I don't think 50 years ago and longer because I'm older than that. I mean, 60, 70 years ago that I don't think people thought to do that much with them. I mean, I'm not saying totally, you know, there were certainly they, they went on to, in some worlds to do other things, but for the most part, they didn't, and people didn't really know what to do with them, and so they just retired them. And now they can have a new life, which is fantastic, and people are caring about them because so many of them, the owners, once so many people that didn't know, they just sent them to a sale, and they went for slaughter. So it was horrible, and now it's illegal to do that. A, a horse with a tattoo can't go through a sale. So there's been a lot of huge, great changes. And the horses deserve it because they're a wonderful horse. They're a wonderful animal. And they have so much more life to give. There is more life after, the, after they race. So for that, I'm grateful that people started this awareness and given them a great second chance. Everybody needs a second chance. Ah. I love it. And that's exactly what the show is all about. So thank you so much, Diane, for saying that. And Kristen, thanks. I I hate to, I know I'm like really dragging this, but Donna, (laughs) I want to give you a shout out because in your, and I've said this before, but maybe not to you directly in your donation for the Haggard race to give, which Donna's organization ended up winning last autumn, Donna, Starlight racing, not a, not a donation, an obligation. And I loved that. That is awesome. Yeah, Absolutely. I wish I could take credit for inventing that um, saying, but actually Jimmy Bell said it the first time, and I, I felt like it should be the, the motto for aftercare since then because if you're involved in horse racing and you think of it as a donation <laughs> and not an obligation, then you shouldn't be involved in horse racing. Mm. Absolutely. Amazing words of advice. And again, thank you all for coming on. I'm like, this is probably one of the most exciting interviews that I've gotten to do in the three years of the show. And I'm so excited. It's Kristen's first episode with us too, and that she could be a part of it. And for those who don't know, Kristen is very active in promoting the thoroughbred. She works with the retired racehorse project for the thoroughbred makeover. And so she's a, a huge part of promoting the aftercare and those second chances for the thoroughbred. And she works with us on the show. So it's, it's nice to see it all come full circle. So thank you guys for setting yeah, the what, path. One other cool thing is look at how, Rosie Napravnik, what a great rider she was and look what she's doing for the afterlife. Oh, I know. We love show. Rosie. We love Yes. <laughs> yes. She's so, so I just talented. To throw yeah. that in she can write because, anything. Yeah, she, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You got it. <laughs> yes. She's definitely setting the path for a younger generation. There's other women just like her who are out there, but it's great to see. I'm so excited for the future of racing the women who are going to be a part of it and the women who have set the tone for it. So thank you all for being on the show and we can't wait to see what else you all do. Thank you. We appreciate it. It's almost spring, which means it's time for spring cleaning. Cashel Company has everything you need to get your barn, tack room, and trailer cleaned and organized before show season begins. From stall organizers to gear bags, hooks, and brushes, and everything in between, Cashel Company's got your back for your pre-show season organizing needs. To stay up to date with the latest products and news, follow Cashel Company on Facebook and Instagram. And to find their products, visit an authorized dealer or visit cashelcompany.com.
Well, it is that fabulous time that we have Leander Cooper from New Vocations join us again with a fabulous training tip and another adoptable horse because who doesn't need the pressure to fill their barn and build new stalls and bring the most adorable horses home. So welcome back, Leandra. That's absolutely right. I like how you put that. (laughs) Oh, I love it all the time. Constantly showing all the, I have to say like, major pause. I have to say that you guys take the most beautiful photos. Like I was trying to get some sale pictures of a pony and I'm like, I need to call new vocations. Cause like your photos are always stellar. (laughs) Thank you. We do have a bit of practice with it. So that does help. (laughs) Well, I can tell you I'm enticed every time I follow you on social media, but before we get into our adoptable horse, I would love to talk and pick your brain about spring management. We're getting to that lovely time when the season's starting to shift and change, which especially if you're in the Midwest, that means rain and mud and cold, but also hot some days, you never Mm -hmm. know what you're going to get. So at new vocations, how do you guys like to manage when your horses get thrush in the hoof or abscess, or when we get rain rot or fungal diseases on their legs, all those things that come with the state or changes of the season? Yeah. Well, I like how you put that, which is managing it because there's only so much that you can do as far as prevention I would say, especially when it comes to young horses, because let's take rain rot as a perfect example, Mm -hmm. because a healthy horse has a really nice barrier in their skin. They have good oils in their hair. They have a healthy skin barrier that when not compromised in any way can do a really good job of protecting them from the bacteria that starts that horrible process. However, Young horses tend to like to play with each other a lot. And so we're constantly dealing with things like little cuts all over them, which you might also see if you see some of our pictures, just some of those unpreventable things because they're just being young horses and playing with each other. But when you have even little cuts can be gateways to bacteria that will get in their skin and start these chain reactions. And this time of year is really tough because you have damp conditions. And as it starts to warm up, one of the things, I mean, even when you're trying to prevent any issues, like say you have your horse with a sheet on or a blanket on that can work to your disadvantage sometimes because you then have a moisture trapped underneath that. If you have really goofy horses like ours, they're running around and getting sweaty and then it's trapped under the blanket. And then if they have cuts then the bacteria is, you know, it's like you can easily get into this real headache of just managing this time of year. But the best thing that you can be do and be is diligent. I would say if you have the ability to at least every couple of days, take the blanket off if they're blanketed and give them a really good curry. If you don't have a lot of time, the curry comb, I would say is always the go-to like curry comb and pick their feet. Those are going to be your two really good defense mechanisms in just trying to bring those healthy oils out and restore that healthy barrier and get the junk out of their feet that's packed in there because again moisture in their feet is usually the biggest cause of thrush because then it's bacteria breeding ground so diligence in the grooming process like i said some of that's just not going to be preventable to a certain degree like you can do the best that you absolutely can and these guys 
as we all know, as horse people, they just find ways to get themselves into trouble. Mm -hmm. So keeping them dry and clean to the best of your ability is always my recommendation. And the, the way that you do that is going to vary depending on what resources you have. I mean, we stash things like coat defense and baby powder the, everything that we can do to try to avoid the situations where our horses are becoming basically homes to bacteria overgrowth, which is just a big part of a lot of those issues. Just, you know, thrush, perfect example, rain rub, perfect example, things like abscesses. When you're having these wet and dry sequences that can cause the hoof to expand and contract. And when it, there are little cracks and things like that, then your natural barriers again are compromised and bacteria can get in there and then you have those problems. So again, any sort of diligence that you can have in noticing as soon as you can, even if something does come up, when you can identify it early and treat it, then it can hopefully be more easily treated or you can get ahead of it with antibiotics, just depending on what you need to do. And I could always feel free anyone to reach out to me for kind of product recommendations and those sort of things. But the, the real best thing that you can do, especially for those of you who are boarders and maybe don't have a lot of control over that, you're just coming to ride your horse and maybe they've been turned out all day and you might not have the most control over all the circumstances. And even if we do try to control all of those, mother nature is going to have the final say on all of that. So really we're at the mercy of a lot of it, but get out your curry comb, get out your hoof pick. Those things are going to do really well by you. There are some things I really swear by like thrush buster. I love thrush buster. It's again, it, Really, anything that you can do to help them out with their own natural defenses is going to help you out in the long run. Some people like to put their horses on, like my personal horse is on a KPP product. That's a, 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 a an omega oil that's really high in omega threes, which is helps to reduce um, inflammation and create those, promote that same, um, nice hoof and coat condition that will keep them healthy as best as they can against, uh, any of the, the bacteria invaders. So lots of little things. I'm sure everybody has their own little tips, but I would say the big blanket statement overall is just try to be, um, as diligent as you can with just monitoring them and trying to, you know, take that blanket off, curry, hoof pick. Those, that's going to be my best simple advice for you overall. Maybe I that's love it. I love it. I think <laughs> diligence is huge. And like, I'll throw in a quick tip as well. Clean your brushes, especially if you yeah. share brushes, like you can keep a little bit of like the stall sanitizing spray or whatever, keep the, a small yeah. bottle in your tack room. Cause you can just spray your brushes in between, especially if you're sharing between horses and your saddle pads, that's key. And we actually just, we went through a lot of blankets that I felt didn't have the breathability that I was looking for the horses, especially cause we have really active youngsters. So I ended up tossing a lot of blankets that, it, you know, we get them washed every season. You know, horses are still going to get them dirty and ripped and all those sort of things, but watch out for that as well. Like you said, easy with saddle pads. If you're not washing them after every use, which we do same with girths, you can mm -hmm. have to deal with that as well. But really that's sort of what we're dealing with horses who still maybe have long coats and are shedding out, but you're working them more. So they're sweating. So just try to stay on top of the moisture control as best you can. And that's really our big combat of the season. <laughs> 
Absolutely. (laughs) Fabulous tips, Leandra. Thank you so much. And speaking of great things you're going to bring to the table, tell us about our adoptable horse because he's a dreamboat. Yeah, he really is. So Marzo is appropriately named for as we are now entering into the month of March, um, which I had to actually look up sadly, but Marzo means March, which, you know, I will take a little side note here and say he's actually born in April. His birthday is like birthday is April 12th. You have to tell them that. They don't need to know that. that, I was like, bye. But to Marzo, it's his month. Even if he wasn't born in it, it's his month. He was actually a grade three stakes winner. He earned over $300,000 in 24 starts. And now he's with us. He's a 2015 gelding. He stands at 16-1, but he has that real broad build with the thick bone. And so he really has that uh, big horse appearance, which I would say is kind of classic of the Medallia Doro baby. Um, they're always lovely and they tend to have really nice movement. So if you watch his freelance video, you'll see he is no exception to that. And just overall is a very been there, done that kind of horse. Um, there's not much that bothers him. He has a real air to him of like, yes, I am royalty. He knows that that he is awesome. I'm excited to see what he's going to be able to do because this is a horse who had a, had a pretty decent career on the track. I mean, 24 starts is nothing to look down on for sure. He's established himself. He did his due time there and he had a condylar fracture that he had repaired, but he, he still has two screws in his ankle from that, but he's the kind of horse who's not going to mind having a little jewelry. His joint still looks pretty good and he just knows that he's an athlete and that's where the heart and the brain are going to distinguish those individuals who can really go on and still be competitive and he just is one of those kind of horses so i think it's very exciting to see what he's going to be able to do and if you can check out his free lunch video definitely do that because we were all trying to pick our jaws up off the ground after we were filming just stunned by him so i think he's going to be really fun for someone absolutely i'm watching his video now and if you are someone looking for a dressage prospect i'm sure he can go many routes he's a gorgeous horse but i'm looking at him like oh this movement is to die for he's gorgeous he just kind of floats around yeah he does he'd be a real stunner in the dressage ring so if you're looking for a new dancing partner make sure to check him out as well as all the other horses at horseadoption.com oh and just in case you're wondering how expensive he was he's just going to cost you the crazy insane price of a thousand dollars. So, I mean, he's practically free. (laughs) That might just be exactly what your tax return is this year. So if you're looking for, (laughs) it could be a sign. If you end up applying for Mars though, you bring him home, let us know. We'd love to know how he's doing or any of the other horses we featured. We'd absolutely love to showcase you on retired racehorse radio. Leandra, thank you so much for coming on. If anyone wants to see Leandra or hang out with her, make sure you get your tickets for the open house barbecue at new vocations happening the same time as Land Rover. You can find all the info at horseadoption.com. And Leandra, until next time, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. You can find our show notes and links to today's guests on the website at retiredracehorseradio.com. Like us on Facebook and Instagram, just search for Retired Racehorse Radio. You can also follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio. 
I can be found on Instagram at the horseback rider, and you can follow all of my racehorse ranch adventures at Facebook at jobber bill racehorse to ranch horse. And my email is kbentley at the rrp.org. You can find me on Instagram at the foodie equestrian and my email is joy at horseradionetwork.com. Thank you so much to our sponsors, Kentucky performance products and Cashel company. We could not do this without you. And don't forget to check out all the other shows on the horse radio network at horseradionetwork.com. Remember to set your goals high and love to learn from every ride and add more leg. Oh, amen. Have a good one guys. Mm-hmm.